what's the world's what's the world's greatest need? Um, if you if we could give you a camera and a microphone and you could hit the streets and stick that mic in people's faces and start start rolling, uh, you would probably get answers that would vary quite widely. Um, right now, of course, many would say an end to the pandemic. We get that. Uh, no more poverty or hunger. Um, education for all. Health care for everyone. Uh, world peace, an end to all wars, conflicts. Uh, protecting the environment. Love. This is the Beatles. All we need is love. And we, I'm not going to sing it. All right. Um, now, who would argue against the fact that these are real needs? None of us would. I mean, none of us want more death, more sickness, more fighting, uh, more hunger, more pollution. None of us want those things. But now, how those needs are explained and how they would be addressed and should be addressed, now, of course, that's where the rub is and, and, and maybe the, the urgency or the, which, which of those needs are the most pressing. We would disagree about that, perhaps. But if we ask the Apostle John that same question, what is the world's greatest need, I don't think he would hesitate to answer. I, I, I think that's very clear. And his answer would be simply Christ. It's Christ. Now, if we pressed him a little more and, and felt like that was a little simplistic, a kind of a Sunday school answer, uh, what, what, what do you mean? Elaborate on that, John. I think he might say something like this. The world, the world needs life in Christ life in Christ. We, they, we rescue from the curse of death that has this stranglehold on the world. And the world needs light in Christ. Release from the, the chaos of darkness that, 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 that it is characteristic of this world. And so we, we've been seeing this already in this, in, this, in this gospel account. Last week we saw this the reality. Darkness is real. There's real darkness. We need to be honest about death and darkness and, and lament over them. Uh, Pastor Flintoff walked us through that. But, he, but the encouragement is hope is alive. In Christ and in Christ alone, there is hope of this darkness piercing light and life. And, 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 and so John makes it clear that what he thinks is the greatest need when he gets to the end of the, letter, end of the gospel account where he says what the whole purpose of this account is. And it's this. It's his whole aim is to have readers that would believe in Christ, the true light, and live. That's, the, that's his aim. And so in the opening verses of John that we just read once again, we've been reading these each week, we're, we're just thrown right away into the, the, deep and, uh, the deep end of the mysteries of Christ and the wonders and the glories of Jesus Christ. So we read those words again that are so familiar but so profound. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without anything was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So in, the, in those opening verses, the, the glories of the eternal, the pre-incarnate, the creating, life-giving, revealing word of God, Jesus Christ, they just explode before us in those opening verses. And then we get to verse 6. And what do we read? There was a man whose name was John. It, it can kind of seem like a, a letdown. We, we go from heaven to earth. We go from eternity to time, from creator to created, from God to man, from the to a. 
And so it can, it can be like, it can be a little bit of a letdown. It's like if you went down to Callaway Gardens and their fantasy of lights and, and drove through that, all oh, a spectacular light display, and then you drove by my house. And I have, I started doing Christmas lights outside. I got one string of lights up, one little random tree in my yard. I haven't even turned them on. I'm so embarrassed. I just quit. But as, as if I turn them on, it's like, it's like that's kind of the comparison. You're, it just seems like a letdown. So what's going on here? Well, you remember the purpose of John. He, again, he's helping us to see and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and, and, and so that we would believe in him and have life in his name. And so he wants us to see that Jesus alone, and in him alone, we have this darkness-piercing light of life. So he wastes no time making his case. And what he does is he, he starts under the Spirit's inspiration, he starts piling up these witnesses to Christ and to who he is. And these witnesses that are verifying his claim. That's what a witness does. You have a news reporter. They have eyewitness account and, and to, 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 to show the validity, the, the veracity of their, of their story. Same thing with a witness in the courtroom. And so John gives us many witnesses in this gospel account. And we're not going to walk through the whole account again, but just some of the witnesses he puts on the stand. God the Father takes the stand. Uh, Jesus Christ himself, the Holy Spirit, the, the works, the miracles of Christ, the, the, um, the, the scriptures, the prophets, the, looking at the Old Testament, the, the other people, the Samaritan woman and the crowds and the disciples. All of these are witnesses that John puts on the stand to testify to who Christ is. So we might believe in him and have life in his name. And so in verse 6, though, we're introduced to one of the star witnesses. It's John the Baptist. And, it, it, and it's, not to, it's not to change the subject. It's not like he's moving on from, uh, from, uh, to something else other than Christ here in, in these opening verses. No, John the Baptist's whole life, his whole purpose was to put, all, put and keep all of the focus on Christ. That's why he existed. That's why God sent him. And so John had a specific role to play when Christ, the light, broke into this dark world in the incarnation. And so church, I know, as Paul was praying just a moment ago, I know this is so familiar to us. And, and, and it can be kind of ho-hum hearing about the incarnation again in this passage, these verses that we've, we've read, we've studied many times probably, if you've been a believer for, for, for many years. But let's resist the tendency toward apathy. Let's resist it with every fiber of our being this morning that, that we might behold and draw near to this, this darkness-piercing light together. That's what we want to see. And so I pray, I pray that we have open ears to hear this testimony about this light, to open hearts, to believe and receive it, open eyes to see the wonderful gift that it is and comes to us through it. That's, let's, let's, let's walk through that together. And that's kind of the, the way we're going to walk through this passage. So first, let's open our ears to hear testimony about the darkness-piercing light. And so we're, we're introduced to John the Baptist there in, in, in verses 6 to 8. And so this is a different guy than John the writer of this gospel account, John the Apostle. So I just, I know I was confused about that when I was a young believer. So this is a different person. So now, because John the Baptist is always next to Jesus when he shows up in the gospel accounts, it's easy to kind of underestimate his importance and influence. I mean, you put anyone next to Christ, next to the Son of God, and they seem kind of small. Um, but, but put him next to you and me. Put him next to Elijah Put him next to David, Moses, Abraham, and he's head and shoulders above them all. We, we don't have to, that's just not my opinion. That's what Jesus himself said. Jesus said, 
Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. A significant, towering figure in Scripture. Now, it's not because of he, who, he, who he is innately. He's just Mr. Wonderful, and he's just this great guy. It's because he's sent by God for this special, unique role. The one who prepares the way for Christ, for the Messiah. So just a few quick facts to note about him. One, his, his conception and birth were miraculous. We go to Luke and we see this. And so he's born to this elderly, way beyond childbearing years couple. And, and, and they've never been able to conceive before. And yet his, he's born to them. He, he's the only person in human history we know that was filled with the Holy Spirit while he was still in the womb. He, he's, he's this bridge between the Old and the New Testaments. He is the last of those Old Testament prophets. We see this in Matthew eleven thirteen. 13. For all the prophets and all the law, it prophesied until John. So in, in that sense, he's like this dividing line in history. But he's not just a prophet, though. He is, he's the fulfillment of prophecy. And, 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 and he was sent by God as, as a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah 40, verse 3. He's, he's a little bit eccentric. That's putting it mildly. In a, in a kind of Elijah-like fashion, he lived in the desert, in the wilderness. He ate locusts. He, he wore camel hair clothes. But as he... As he, he, he passionately preached this urgent message, calling people to repent before the kingdom comes. Those who did were baptized and followed him. And because of all of this, he, he be, sort of became legendary in the ancient world. We see as late as Acts chapter 19 that his disciples are showing up again. And so this is, this is not, in Pal- not in Palestine, but I'm talking hundreds of miles away in Ephesus. They're showing up. So they're still, the text says, followers of John the Baptist 30 years after he's died. So he's significant. And so he's quite a remarkable man. But this is, this is what John is, why he has him up here at the front. Because he's assuming we know all of this about John from Matthew and from Luke. And he's saying, I, I know you know all that, but this is what I want you to see. The greatest of men is just a man. He's just a man. He's a mere man. Jesus is the divine word. John came. Jesus was, as we've been saying. He, he always was, wasing. He's ex- eternally existent. He, John was sent by God. Jesus is God. John came to testify about the light. Jesus is the true light. John was an instrument of faith that, that people might believe in Christ. Jesus is the very object of faith. A vast difference. And so his whole message, his whole life was simply this giant finger that pointed at Christ. That's why he existed. John the Baptist, or we probably more accurate to call him John the Witness or something like that. But he had one aim in mind with his life and with his teaching and preaching. And that aim had nothing to do with himself. It had everything to do with Christ. He was, he was a witness. He came to just simply bear testimony about Jesus, to put all eyes, all attention on the Lamb of God who takes away the Son of the world. That's why he existed. He didn't come to talk about himself, attract followers to himself. He came to talk about the true light and to point people to him. I, mean, I think that just this is a, as a preacher, this is something I try to remind myself of constantly. The goal of preaching is not so people say, wow, what a sermon, what a preacher. 
Say, what a Christ. What a Christ. And this is the goal of our lives, that, that, that we might decrease, that he might increase. People will see him. We're, we're just pointing to him over and over and over again. And so is your life, brothers and sisters, are your words, are they pointing people to Christ, to hope, to hope in him alone for this light and life that we've been talking about? Is this, is this true of you? We're, we're, we're very ready to talk about we're to, and ready to praise people, aren't we? That's kind of a popular thing today. I've got the best doctor. Yours is not as good as mine. I mean, we, we boast about those things. I have the best podiatrist, and if you have a toe fungus, this is where you got to go. Uh, so we, we, we boast about We boast about our restaurants. This is, the, this is the only place to get pizza in this town. Or we boast about businesses. Or we, we, we talk about those things. We get excited about, you know, songs or, or musicians or movies and actors. And we, we talk about them and a thousand other things. But how prevalent is our boast in the Lord Jesus Christ? How often are we so enthusiastically pointing people and testifying to his sufficiency and his goodness and the way he helps us and his comfort and his glory? And so this is John, his, his message. He's just pointing, pointing constantly people to Christ. And the whole thing that's motivating him is that all, all people might look to Christ in faith. He came as a witness, verse 7. Look at the text. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Why? So that all people might believe through him. The goal of his ministry was, again, not to gain a following for himself, but that through his ministry, the him there is John, and that, that people would believe in Jesus and follow him. He wanted to be used by God, that people would believe in and receive Christ. Verse 8, John the, the writer makes very clear and a very sharp distinction between John the Baptist and Jesus. And he says again, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. He's telling people about light. Isn't that kind of an odd thing? I mean, who, who needs to be told about light? Did you need to be told the lights were on when you walked in this room this morning? Like we, we didn't make an announcement, Patrick, when he started the service. I just want you guys to know the sun came up today. Uh, we have the lights on, so just want you to know that you can see. You don't have to be told you can see. Nobody talks like that because if we, we know there's light because we see. Well, in, in that light, A.W. Pink has these words about this passage. He says, weigh these words well. They are solemn and tragic. Perhaps their force will be more evident if we ask a question. When the sun is shining in all of its beauty, who are the ones unconscious of this fact? Who needs to be told it is shining? The blind. How tragic then that when we read that God sent John to, to bear witness to the light, how terrible that there should be any need for this. How solemn the statement that men have to be told the light is now in their midst. What a revelation of man's fallen condition. This is our condition, Lord, brothers and sisters, before God in his sovereign grace broke through our blindness and opened our eyes to see the light. We were blind. We were, we were in total darkness. I mean, this is what our partners, our brother and sister in Croatia and their family are doing right now. This is the, the family Paul prayed for earlier. They're testifying about the light to those who are blind to the truth about Jesus. 
living in darkness. They're going to those to whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, Paul says. They're going to those blinded by a false religion, those who are looking to these false lights but not to the true light, Christ. And church, this is what we're, we're doing here too, what we're to be doing. There are people all around us blind to the truth about Jesus just as we were. And with, with compassion in our hearts for their blindness, for their blind condition and their deafness to the truth of Christ. The, again, the conditions we were born in. We, we go out these doors, we testify to the true light. To those blinded by their own false gods. Seeking after their own false counterfeit lights. And, Lord, and, and, and as brothers and sisters in Christ here. I mean, this is what we do week in and week out, isn't it? We, 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 we're constantly pointing one another back again and again and again and again to Christ. This is, what, this is our ministry to one another. This is what the writer of Hebrews says over and over again. We're, we're, we're constantly encouraging one another all, as the day draws near and just pointing one another back to Jesus and his sufficiency to grow in our faith in him, to trust him more day after day, to keep hoping in him when the darkness just just frightens us the darkness in our lives the darkness in our world and we're we're tempted to just despair because it's so dark we we keep pointing one another back to hope in christ to stay confident in him to rest in him when we have to confront that great enemy death that's what this gathering is about that's what this table's about that we're going to eat and drink of in in just a moment and and so we need to open our ears to hear this powerful testimony about this darkness piercing light this is what we're saying and this is what we're constantly to be hearing this is what our ears are to be tuned to we need this message and as we hear that testimony we have to respond to it we respond to it in faith and that's the second thing so secondly let's open our hearts to believe to to receive this this darkness piercing light the light doesn't benefit those who's, who close their eyes to it. Uh, John 3.19, John makes a statement. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. There's this willing, willing blindness, willing unbelief, a refusal to receive the light that characterizes the lost world. But even as believers, we find that unbelief in our hearts, don't we? We, we, we're, we keeps us from basking and keeps us from benefiting from the light of Christ. We can live as if we're still in this kind of pre-manger darkness. We can, we can act like that and think like that and talk like that as if there's, this, there's a greater void than, than there truly is. A greater darkness. That's not to say, again, that no real darkness exists in our lives. Oh, believe me, it will. And, it, and we're going to continue to face darkness in this world until Christ returns, uh, post-manger darkness. But, but even the darkness we face must be seen against this backdrop of the light of Christ that's come. We know that Jesus never leaves our side through seasons of darkness. Never. Those dark nights of the soul. 
He's with us and we have hope on this side of not just the manger but of the cross and the empty tomb and the, and the reign of Christ. And so, so we must keep believing, we must keep looking to, we must keep pointing one another to the Christ who is the light. And so this is what John says about Jesus here at this, this light that's, that's been revealed and that our eyes need to be opened to. He says, first of all, it's revealed to everyone. It's revealed to all. The true light, verse 9, look at the text. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Those words just drip with a ooze out messianic fulfillment here. And so in, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, where he's quoting Isaiah 9, verse 2, we see these words, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So Jesus is the, he's the true light. He's not counterfeit. He is, he is authentic. He is genuine he's the real deal he's the true light he's coming into the world in the incarnation and he gives light the text says to everyone what does that mean how does how does christ in his incarnation give light to every person does that mean that every person sees receives the light and is saved of course not but through Jesus' incarnation, the light came into this world and, and the truth was made visible by him. D.A. Carson, I think, has a helpful just summary and maybe he could say in a couple sentences what I would labor to say in a couple minutes. But he says, it shines on everyone and divides the human race. Those who hate the light respond as the world does. They flee lest their deeds should be exposed by this light. But some receive this revelation. In John's gospel, it's repeatedly the case that the light shines on all and forces a distinction. So the coming of the true light, Jesus, it opens up the way for and it calls for this response. And that's what John goes on to show. There are these two opposite responses in this passage. And one, we see that light is rejected by some. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him Yet, the world did not know him. He, the word of God, pre-incarnate, the one who was with God, the one who is God, the, the light of the world, the light of, life of men, he, he, was, he was in the world. And the world, this world that was made through him, that the world, Jesus made them, he's actively holding them together by the word of his power, the same, same one who, who, who so, so, but, but what does he say? They refuse to acknowledge him, see him, to know him. They, they're so spiritually blind, they couldn't recognize their maker who, who's dwelling among them. They so love their sin and darkness, that they refuse to receive the light. But it's even worse, verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. His own people, Israel, God's chosen nation, Jesus' own people. The ones who were not a people, but God made them the people of God. The ones who, who were entrusted with the scriptures, the ones who had the prophets and the promises of God. The ones that God cut these covenants with, the ones through whom God had been pre preparing the way for thousands of years. The ones that God could have wiped out time and time again because of their unfaithfulness and their disobedience, but he refused to. He was so patient and long-suffering with them. They should have recognized Jesus as their promised Messiah, but they couldn't see him for who he is. They're, they were too blind. 
They thought they could see. They thought they were the ones that could see. They thought they knew what they really needed. And they thought they needed a political, military deliverer. They, 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 they thought they knew what kind of Messiah they needed and the one that God would send. But they were blind to their true need of a Savior from sin. And so when the light of the world came, they rejected the true light. And now, here we are, 2,000 years after, after the Spirit's witness, uh, uh, 2,000 years of the Spirit's witness in, in history and in our lives, and people still reject Him today. They still reject the true light. They look for light elsewhere. They look for these counterfeit false lights and, and light substitutes, whether it's money or, or morality or performance or social connections or on and on and on. Safety. and Those are... Those are those are as close to the true light as like a, a lightning bug is to actual lightning. I mean, there's no comparison. Or maybe we should say it's, it's amazing that we aren't, we aren't still rejecting the light. That's the reality. The only difference between those who are rejecting the light and, and those of us who've received it, it's the sheer grace of God. The next verses are going to make this abundantly clear. But by the grace of God alone, not everybody refuses the light. By the grace of God, we who once refused the light have received him. And that's the second thing. So the light's rejected by some, but it's received by others. Some of the most beautiful words spoken are the smallest words, aren't they? Uh, again, 23 years ago today, um, uh, Brooke said in a very sweet and soft and trembling and yet sincere voice those little words I do and I said the same uh, probably more trembling though um, just that simple little two word sentence and yet so powerful so beautiful so life altering well just, just this two li little two letter word in the Greek here and we're given hope that we can be rescued from absolute certain condemnation. And you see it there in verse 12. But. Day. But. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So to those who receive the, the darkness-piercing light of life, God doesn't deal with us in the way that our sin deserves. He graciously provides a way of escape. Those who receive, that's a critical word in this verse. The, if somebody asks you, how do you become a part of the family of God? How do you become a Christian? You'd be right on target if you said what you, what you have to do is you have to receive Christ. You receive him. What does it mean to receive Jesus? Well, we don't have to get real technical. It's the opposite of not knowing him, of, of rejecting him. It means to welcome him into your life. John further defines it as believing in his name. Just stop relying on your own merits, on your own works, and as the way that you're going to approach, try to approach God. And instead, you rely totally and completely on Jesus and what He did through His life and death and resurrection. It means you come to grips with the fact that your only hope, your only hope of standing before God, is not your good works, but it's the fact that Jesus died for your sins and you're trusting in Him alone. That's what it means. I mean, we, heard, we heard the baptism testimonies a few weeks ago and, and who would have thought we could have waited a couple weeks and done baptisms in here but we, we, we set all that up over there but, but those, what, what are they testifying to? Ah, received Christ trusted in him 
believed in his name, put my faith in Christ. I mean, that's it. Have you received Christ? Have you believed in his name? Is that, is that where your trust and your confidence lies? If not, this is the day. Today is the day. You can, you can turn to him. You can cry out to him. You can acknowledge, I've been hoping in other things. I've been trying to be good enough. I, it's, it's, it doesn't work. And yet I, I need you. I need help. I need someone else that can save me. And I trust you alone, Christ, and what you've accomplished, what you did for me. You can cry out to him right now. Come talk to us afterwards, and we'd love to rejoice with you and in that new life that you receive. But for those who hear the testimony about the darkness piercing light, open their hearts to receive and believe in Jesus, what we see is everything changes. Everything changes. For those of us who've received Christ, everything has changed, hasn't it? And it's so good and and important to remember that again and again. It's almost like every Lord's Day is, for those who have adopted, you understand this language, gotcha day. It's, it's, it's this day, the gotcha day is like the day each year that adoptive families will celebrate the, the placement of that child into their family. Now they're part of their family. They have that name. They're, they're a member of this family. We are constantly remembering the fact that we're children of God by faith in Christ. Every Lord's Day is this opportunity to, to revel in that reality. And that's where we go in these last verses here. Let's, let's last open our eyes to see the incredible gift of belonging to the darkness-piercing light. Look at these two massive, wonderful gifts that are ours because of Christmas, because of Christ. First, we have a new family. Verse 12, we, he, he gave, to those who believe, he gave the right to become children of God. It's a simple statement, but so incredible. The God who made, who flung, remember talked about a couple weeks ago, all those 10 octillion stars out into space and who holds all that together. He, he, he spoke all that into existence with a single word. The, the creator of all things who upholds all things by the, by the word of his power. He gives you and me the right to become his children. You and I need to hold that truth with everything we have and never, ever let that go. Hold that close to your heart. Guard it at all costs. Paul prayed uh, this earlier from 1 John 3, verse 1. Behold or see. This is John's way. uh, We could just translate it. Get this. It's like he's putting his hands on your shoulders and saying, just listen to what I'm telling you. See this. Behold what kind, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. It's as if John's saying, I can't believe it. We we are God's children. God didn't have to adopt us. He didn't have to make us his own. He had no obligation to bring us into his family. It's love. What a wonderful privilege. Adoption. It's this incredible miracle, wonder that we, we would be part of God's family. And, so, and this reality opens the doors to a thousand other, other blessings. We don't have time to go through all of these. Let me just give you a couple of things. Because, because we're now children of God, because we're part of this new family, we have, we have the witness of the Holy Spirit in us that gives us assurance. Romans, Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Because we're children of God, we no longer have to fear judgment or condemnation. 
We don't have, to, we don't have the spirit of slavery any, any longer that, that leads to fear, but we have the spirit of freedom and adoption. Romans 8.15. We can now call God Father, Abba. We have the privilege of this intimate access to God, our loving Father in prayer. I mean, have you ever had the experience of admiring someone for, for years from a distance and, 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 and just looking up to this person? And then you have this opportunity to kind of be brought into their orbit and you get to know them in an intimate way and become friends. And so they say, you, you don't have to call me mister, just, just call me John. And, and, and that privilege of that. Well, with that in mind, Sinclair Ferguson, kind of that image in mind, he says this. He says, but that, that privilege, it pales into insignificance by comparison to with what we have here. Christ is giving us access to the presence of his Father and saying to us, you may now speak to him as I speak to him. With the same right of access, with the same sense of intimacy, with the same assurance that he loves you. We may speak with the Father just as he speaks with the Father. What a privilege. What a privilege. And last, I'd just say, because we, we have this new family, we have a new relationship to one another. The church is a family. We're children of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. And our membership into this family has all kinds of implications. We've been exploring some of these in 1 Corinthians, and so I'm not going to labor this point, but we're, we're not just joined together by kind of common interests. We, we're, we're both religious people or something like that. No, we're brought together through Christ into this cosmic reality that will last forever. It's cosmic family. And the bonds we have together in Christ are deeper than any other bonds that we could have with other human beings. And it doesn't, that just doesn't affect the, the kind of the definition of, of our relationships, but it affects the character of them, which means we ought to be close to one another. It ought to work itself out in tangible ways. We're, we're relying upon one another, helping one another, loving, serving, sacrificing, preferring one another. Church is, is this family. We say in our, in our vision statement, this family to whom we belong and on whom we depend. That's what that's to, to characterize us. And so we have the gift of a new family. But but before Jesus, the true light came into the world, this wasn't possible. Something else was necessary. The grace of adoption into God's family, it, it comes by the grace of a new birth. So verse 13, we're, we're children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. We are born of God. Receiving Christ, that's what we do. That's salvation from our perspective. Giving new birth, that's what God does. We're born of God. Our new life is of God. It's simply said, it's his doing. And it's almost as if John's anticipating some objections, some questions. And he says, you know, some are going to say that, that, that we're, we're born, it has to do with uh, because of our racial or ethnic background. You've got to have Jewish blood in those veins. Now, in, that, in, in his own day, that's what they'd be thinking. But John says, no, 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 no. It's not a blood. It's not a blood. It's not, by, it's not because you can trace your lineage to Billy Graham or to Charles Spurgeon or John Calvin or you know, Augustine or whoever. It's not, none of that. Paul, David, Abraham. We, we don't attribute our salvation to our family line, to our ethnic heritage, to, to uh, our upbringing. No, we're born of God. It's his doing. And some would say that God, no, God saves people because of their sincerity. And John says, no, no, no. It's not of the will of the flesh. It's not it. 
It's not because you're so passionate, so religious in your pursuit of God, of, of spiritual things. No, you're born of God. God gave you new birth. Some would say it's because of, you know, religious activity that, that we're doing good things to assure our standing before God. And John says, no, no, it's not of the will of man. No amount of human work, ingenuity, can, can ever bring a person to spiritual life. It's, it's of God. I know, I know some, we, we kind of choke on that thought that it's, it's, of, it's of God and this truth of divine election and that, that, that's not the effect God intends. This should cause us to burst forth with thanksgiving, gratitude, uh, humility, uh, joy, hope at this thought that we're saved through no merit of our own. There's mystery here we can't fully resolve Yes, we have the responsibility to believe in Christ for salvation. It's our responsibility to urge and call others to receive Christ. But whenever we believe in Christ, we can't take credit for the new birth and for our placement into this new family. All we can say is, if God didn't graciously give me new life, I would still be dead in my sin. If he hadn't placed me into this new family by faith, I would have no place of belonging. All glory goes to him. I mean, this is, again, thinking of our baptism testimonies. This is, these, these young, young folks were praising God for what he has done for them. And then little Zach Taylor at the end, praise God, you know, raises his hands, praise God. I love that little moment, yeah. Uh, so we need to open our eyes to see this gift. All right, so what's the world's greatest need? What's our greatest need? It's Christ. It's life and light in Christ. And what we need more than anything, God has provided through the birth, life, death, resurrection, and reign of Jesus. And so into the chaos of darkness that fills our world and the curse of death that, that, that grips our world, the light and life of Christ is broken in through the incarnation. That's what we're seeing in John here. So church, what do we do? Oh, let's keep our ears open. Let's keep straining to hear again and again and again this testimony of the darkness piercing light so that we, we can be assured of the, the truthfulness of this. Let's keep our hearts open and continue to believing and receiving and growing in faith and confidence in this darkness piercing light who is Christ. Let's keep our eyes wide open to see anew again and again this glorious gifts that are ours, this new family, this new birth that are ours in the darkness piercing light that we've received everything about this year all the difficulties of 2020 the stresses of the next couple weeks with the holidays and all of that and the worries that that probably plague our minds the the doubts that may haunt you the sins that still entangle us the the shame the the guilt we we feel and carry they they, they are all conspiring to close our ears close our hearts, to close our eyes from these realities, from, from Christ and what he has done, breaking into the dark. But together, by the Spirit's enabling, let's, let's face this darkness, this real darkness, knowing and hoping in Christ who is light and life. And let's go proclaim this message wherever the Lord places us. We're going to sing in just a moment and then we come to the table and this song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. And this verse in here, in our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Let's pray together. 
Well, that is, that is what we want to do as we come and eat and drink together, as we sing together even now, and we want to look to Christ together, Lord. Um, we, 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 in our longing, in our darkness, Lord, we thank you that the light of life has come. And so help us to rejoice in this as we sing. Help us to revel in this as we eat and drink with thankfulness for uh, all that was accomplished through this light of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.